This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's Monday, February 6th, and no one wants to be the president that didn't shoot down a Chinese spy balloon. We start here. U.S. officials claim President Biden wanted a fire on a surveillance balloon right when he saw it. He just didn't know about it in time. What we have here is a failure to communicate. It's splashed down over the weekend. We'll tell you everything that's popped off since. Recessions don't usually add half a million jobs at a time. There are two available jobs for every unemployed person. But this monster jobs report might not mean you're getting paid more. And Iowa? Try Biowa. Democrats have decided to start with South Carolina. For the first time in half a century, a new state gets first dibs in the Democratic primaries. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. It is so tempting to pop a balloon, right? If it's just floating around, all you got to do is poke it. It's especially satisfying when the balloon belongs to somebody you don't like. Like if the neighborhood bully allowed his balloon to wander into your yard, pop. Right now, there is a ground stop on our airport. And this thing is up in the sky. Well, late last week, the nation learned that a huge balloon from China was floating high over the U.S. This Chinese surveillance balloon, they say, traveled from Alaska here to Montana and is still on the move this morning. We learned this was not just a hot air balloon, but a craft built specifically for surveillance. Since that moment, there was a steady building drumbeat of Americans asking, why aren't we blowing this thing out of the sky? It does not present a military or physical threat to people on the ground. Instances of this kind of balloon activity have been observed previously over the past several years. Military officials say President Biden gave the order to shoot it down back on Wednesday. You might remember that was the day the FAA shut down airspace over Billings, Montana. But apparently the military advised Biden that could be unsafe. So it kept floating. It flew southeast over Rapid City, South Dakota, Omaha, Nebraska, over St. Louis, Missouri, and Raleigh, North Carolina. That is insane. The balloon is right over heads. There it is. Yeah, it is right over my house. Do we still got work tomorrow? And with every American backyard at Passover, this balloon was morphing into less of a military concern and more of a political one. And I think it really would have been helpful for the president of the United States to get on national television and explain to the American people, this is what we're dealing with, this is what I'm going to do about it, and, uh, and this is why I haven't done it yet. Republican lawmakers said this showed a fundamental weakness from President Biden toward the Chinese, particularly as the White House tries to mend a frayed relationship ahead of his State of the Union address. Some conservatives said this would never happen under President Donald Trump until we learned, apparently, some of these balloons had been spotted during Trump's time in office, and in fact, some others were passing over other countries right now. And so on Saturday afternoon, once this balloon cleared the American coastline, the U.S. military finally had its chance to shoot it down, which is exactly what it did. <gasps> Whoa! Compliments of an F-22 fighter jet. That is a big kill. The balloon is completely destroyed. So if you had questions as this was unfolding, so did we. Let's get into all of them with Colonel Stephen Ganyard, formerly a Marine Corps fighter pilot and State Department official, now a contributor with ABC News. Colonel, first off, 
why did they end up shooting it down the way they did? Yeah, so Brad, remember that the, the White House was very um, clear that they wanted to avoid any potential civilian casualties. And so that meant they had to wait till it gets off the east coast of the U.S. But U.S. territorial waters and U.S. territorial airspace only goes to 12 nautical miles. That's sort of uh, accepted international law. So they had to make it come down or at least be shot uh, and coming down inside that 12 nautical miles because it went outside that that would be international airspace, and they would lose their legal justification for shooting it down. So depending on what the winds are, and the winds are actually less at 60,000 feet than they are at about 40,000 feet, but let's say they're going 50, 60 miles an hour, that meant they had about 20 minutes in which to bring that thing down before it escaped into international airspace. Oh, oh yeah. Woo! Here we go, baby. Get it! So that's what they did, right as they crossed the coast, and they were sure that it wasn't going to land on uh, on somebody sitting on the beach looking up at it, that uh, they pulled the trigger and the uh, and the balloon came down well within U.S. territorial waters. Holy sh**. Holy sh**. How dangerous would it actually be, that, like, just to shoot it down over land? Like, was that really that big of a worry? Well, remember that that air-to-air missile works because it gets close to an airplane and then it shoots out a spray of shrapnel So, in a, in a big fan pattern. So at 60,000 feet, that shrapnel is going to go a long way and create a big debris field on the ground. So it's not a big missile, but you never know. You don't want to be the person that's uh, having a bad day and, uh, and you might get hit on the ground. The uh, gondola underneath it apparently weighs a couple tons. Uh, we could see at least... 16 solar panels underneath and there was the sensor package or that area that was all metal so that's a big heavy thing so uh, you know if it comes apart there was all sorts of potential for damage and the farther south the balloon flew into into uh, more populated areas the less uh, less chance that it would uh, would that it wouldn't uh, be able to be brought down without hurting somebody can you tell me about these balloons in general like are these <laughs> i'd never heard about a spy balloon until like this moment i feel like are are these common? Like, this is a thing that countries do to each other? Yeah, well, you, you haven't heard about it because you're not old enough. An older, a younger man like you <laughs> wouldn't have known that during the uh, during the Cold War, the U.S. Uh, started by flying observation balloons over the uh, over the Soviet Union. Uh, didn't work too well, uh, which is why they developed the U-2 spy plane. Do you plead guilty to the charges listed? Yes, I plead guilty. But you remember what happened to Gary, uh, Gary Fantas Powers when he got shot down over Russia. The trial of the American spy pilot Francis Gary Powers opened in the Hall of Columns at the Trade Union House in Moscow. And so the U.S. said, eh, we can't do this anymore. We fly right over countries. But apparently the Chinese have taken some of that same technology, updated it by having solar panels so they could have satellite communications, all sorts of uh, uh, sensors underneath that balloon. We don't know what yet, but we think that it's uh, electro-optical packages, so... Uh, could be video, could be high-definition uh, photography, it could be singles, signals intelligence. But uh, this is really just an updated uh, version of what the U.S. did in the 50s. And frankly, it goes back to battlefield observation balloons that were in the 1800s. And how do they work? Do we know, what, I guess, what do we know about how these Chinese balloons work? Yeah, there's part of this that the, that the Pentagon is not talking about. So they claim that it has some steering ability that, that amazed them and somehow. Now, there are stratospheric balloons that can steer in general ways, and they do that by sensing where the winds that are favorable to the direction they want to go are. So let's say it's, it's a, the balloon's at 60,000 feet, and it wants to go north, but they know that there's some winds, uh, say, 10,000 feet below at 50,000 feet that would send it to the east. So it can it can ascend or descend where the winds are favorable to the direction oh. of travel, 
but it's an area. It's you know, it's not like they can go right over a, uh, an Air Force base and hover over the Air Force base. Mm. Although the Pentagon's suggesting that there's something that we had uh, that's on this that allow them to do something beyond what we have experienced in the past. So that's why it's going to be really interesting to see when they're able to pick up that debris uh, offshore uh, and see what's actually in that package and what's actually in the balloon. How much of a surprise was this to American officials that it was all of a sudden in Montana? Because there's a lot of America uh, before it got to Montana. Yeah, apparently, apparently we're now learning that um, that the intelligence community knew when this thing came across um, the Aleutian. So the thing that's also interesting is that it started out uh, coming offshore south of South Korea, but then it ran the whole length of Japan. Uh, I was in Japan at the time. Nobody said anything. Nobody noticed this balloon that flew the length of Japan, then went up into the Gulf of Alaska, crossing the Aleutian Island chain, and all the way across Alaska, middle Alaska, before it went into Canada. And the U.S. intelligence community knew about it. But apparently, the White House didn't know about it until it was crossing into Montana. So what we have here is a failure to communicate. Uh, now, there were uh, some, uh, apparently, there were some uh, some Canadian F-18s that had been chasing it a couple days before. What? So maybe the discussions had already been going on at the military level wow. and within NORAD. But look at that big plastic bag in the sky. It is not radar reflective. So the normal things that the U.S. and NORAD, NORAD would be using to track it would be radar, but it's not really radar significant, very difficult to track. So they could be just using telescopes and tracking it like uh, like they would track uh, stars. Uh, but it's uh, it's not something easy to track. And frankly, there are all sorts of stories now coming out that this is not the first mm-hmm. time. It's the fourth time over two administrations that these balloons have been either over or near U.S. territory. So who knows how many we just haven't seen. I feel like that's the big question here, Colonel Gainer, that I still don't have a good read on, is how big, how concerning should this be to the U.S.? Because on one hand, I feel like we're hearing, well, like Chinese are sending surveillance balloons pretty intentionally over North America. Like, that's not good. On the other hand, you've got people kind of being, it almost sounds like they're trying to say, this kind of thing happen. You know, it's a balloon. What do you want? It's really high. I mean, how big of a deal is this, bottom line? Well, let's think about what kind of intelligence they might be collecting. Let's say if it's if it's electro-optical, if they're taking pictures, it's a, you know, a picture from what's really 11 miles up is a lot easier and probably higher resolution than something that's 200-300 miles up in a uh, in a satellite. So maybe they're getting a little better resolution, but it's really over broad areas. It's not like they could I mean, they deliberately flew over some sensitive areas, but still, they could do that from space. Same thing with signals intelligence. They're trying to intercept communications. They have satellites that can do this already. So what's really concerning here is just the arrogance of the Chinese to be able to say, we're going to fly through your your sovereign territory. And you know that they'd be screaming bloody murder if we'd done that to them. So uh, they're doing it in other parts of the world. We know that a balloon recently went across uh, Venezuela and uh, and Colombia. Are we doing uh, it to them though? Is that why this doesn't? At first, people were like, eh, "Is that is this something we would do?" No, that's we we learned that lesson the hard way long ago. We we okay. do all sorts of surveillance flights along coastlines, particularly the Chinese coastlines, which they don't like. But we're in international airspace. They successfully took it down, and I want to compliment our aviators who did it. And we'll have more to report on this uh, a little later. Thank you. Well, and lastly, and I ask you this because part of your gig nowadays is all about geopolitics. That was your role at the State Department. It's what you advise people on now. 
what are the geopolitics of this moment then? Where does this leave the U.S. and China and, and their respective constituencies? Yeah, it chills an already chilly relationship. Uh, the U.S. had been looking forward to the Blinken-Xi meeting because it had been the first time in years, literally, that any high-level U.S. official had been able to talk to any high-level Chinese official. And so it was going to be something that all diplomats like and they like to talk. And, and whether that's whether that's uh, going to be possible in the near term is, is not likely because this is not the only problem the U.S. is looking at. Uh, a think tank in Washington, D.C. came out with a very extensive report this week about how the Chinese are avoiding sanctions and providing dual-use technologies that are keeping part of the Russian war effort alive. So that's concerning. Uh, and now you have the Chinese who knew that they were deliberately violating uh, the airspace above the United States and really didn't care. And so that probably tells you how much they really cared about the Blinken G meeting. Uh, they don't. And, and so once this thing came plummeting down from 11 miles up, I mean, you had a ton of debris here. The structure hanging from the balloon went straight to the seafloor. The U.S. is looking to find all these pieces and learn whatever they can. Federal government also asking citizens not to touch any parts that begin washing up on shore. Good luck with that. Uh, Colonel Stephen Ganyard, thanks a lot for the perspective. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, it was a job market stunner. The only thing is the Fed doesn't like surprises. We're back in a bit. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. On Friday morning, you might have seen that we got the monthly jobs report from the federal government. You might have also seen this was an absolutely eye-popping number. The economy's created 517,000 jobs just last month. However, what you might not have seen is that not everyone's completely clear on whether half a million new jobs is actually all good news. Let's go to ABC's Elizabeth Schulze, who covers the economy. Elizabeth, 517,000 new jobs created in January – and January, by the way, a month in which you and I were talking about how a tech CEO would lay off his own mom if given the chance. Does this mean we've averted the recession that everyone was fearful of? Brad, these are not the kind of jobs numbers you would see in a recession. That's for sure. And these are a blowout report on really defying expectations on every level here. So hmm. 517,000 jobs, you said it in January. That was more than double the expectation from economists. Really importantly, the unemployment rate dropped to 3.4%, which is the lowest level in this economy in 53 years. And, and really, this report showed strong payroll growth across the economy in leisure and hospitality, in government, in healthcare, in retail, construction, really in 
most sectors, except for that one that we spent a lot of time talking about, which is in this jobs report called the information (laughs) sector, that covers Mm -hmm. tech workers. So the reality is that's really the one kind of weak spot as far as job growth goes in this report. And I think it's really worth remembering that that is one sector of the economy right now. A lot of those workers, at least economists tell me, they might have already found another job. They're high skilled. They're in high demand. And the fact is, this is a labor force where right now, if you are trying to find a job, there is one available. There are two available jobs for every unemployed person. And even as we've seen this kind of strong jobs growth across the economy, there are still jobs to be made up from the losses of the pandemic. So especially in those services sector areas like healthcare or hospitality, we're still not back at the employment level that we were pre-pandemic. And that's one of the reasons why we're just continuing to see this, this really strong growth. Can we talk about wages, though, Elizabeth? Because if somebody's getting a new job, but their wages aren't great, and, and there were people saying, well, it looked like a recession was on the wall, so I decided I finally had to go ahead and get this job that I didn't particularly want. It's fair to ask, are their lives improving that much more? And in fact, we had an ABC News Washington Post poll show that four out of 10 Americans think they are worse off financially under President Biden's administration. I mean, are things as good as that that big headline number suggests? It's such an important question because we've talked a lot about how wages have not kept up with inflation. So even if your pay is going up, if it's not going up as much as prices are going up, you're going to feel that effect. And that's what's happening for a lot of workers in the economy right now. We saw that in this report, wage growth actually softened. So pay is still rising, but it's not rising as fast as it had been. And that's actually where you might have this effect of people thinking that even if they have a job, even if they can find another job, they may not feel like they're making as much money as they should be in order to get by in this economy. Because even though prices are going down, we've talked about inflation cooling, prices are still a lot higher than they were this time last year. And a lot of Americans' pay growth is not keeping up with those price rises at the same time. Hey, you mentioned inflation was cooling. In part, that's because the Fed was making it tougher, basically, for everyone to borrow money. That in itself was creating worries about a recession. They had kind of started backing their foot off the pedal. And yet, you'd think with this huge, huge number that, that maybe they think, oh, shoot, inflation is going to go up because all these people have these new jobs, new spending money. We, we should go back to the way we've been doing things for the last several months. You know, this is a really complicated picture for the Federal Reserve, Brad. And here's why. The Fed actually likes to see that wage growth is softening, that wages aren't going up as much. And the reason for that is that the central bank, the Fed, fears that if wages stay high for too long, that will mean that companies have to build in those higher labor costs, that they might actually pass down those higher costs than in the form of higher prices. So that could complicate the Fed's fight against inflation. And if the job market continues to be this sort of red hot market where employers are competing to find workers and to hire workers and to retain workers, that could make it harder for the Fed to keep inflation down in the longer term, because at some point, businesses will have to resort to keeping wages higher to keep those workers around. Which is frustrating to hear, right? Because it makes it sound like in this economy, the moment that workers actually feel better about their salaries, that's what sets warning lights off at the Fed. Like, I guess the optimistic view would be that the Fed would take care of prices first, then would take care of wages, because if, if prices are going up so fast that it doesn't make your wages any better, then that's no good either. But yikes, just what a tightrope. Elizabeth Schulze, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brad. We just wrapped up the midterm elections. The presidential cycle seems light years away, right? Or at least two years away. And yet, 
Let's look at the calendar and work backwards, because November 2024, as you know, we have the presidential election. First primaries begin less than a year from now. The first one is February 3rd. That means, think about it, by this summer, campaigns will be in full swing, trying to plot how to get those votes. And this weekend, for the first time in decades, Democrats announced they are officially departing from the old primary calendar where Iowa starts us off, followed by New Hampshire. No, next February, South Carolina voters will cast the first votes that matter in the Democratic presidential cycle. This was hashed out by a vote by their party's national committee, and ABC's Brittany Shepard was there. Brittany, I'm confused, man, because Republicans did not change their format, right? So it's just the Democrats? What's happening here? You're exactly right, Brad. There's a little bit of craziness that's going to be happening next winter. There's going to be two primaries running at the same time in different parts of the country, Mm. which means if you're covering Democrats, you can say goodbye to the Iowa caucuses, goodbye to Des Moines, and hello to Charleston. You know, you're trading the winter for the summer, Mm. like jacket for bikini (laughs) in February. And Democrats have decided to start with South Carolina. Black and Latino voters are the committed base of our party and deserve to have a say in the crafting of who our nominee is. The argument being that Iowa simply is just too white Mm. and doesn't actually accurately represent the diversity of what their coalition and caucus looks like today. All those in favor of approving the report say aye. Aye. All opposed nay. The eyes have it. And so they the said Iowa to Iowa. They're trying to make Iowa a thing. Let's see like, if it catches on. Um, and are starting in South Carolina on February 3rd, just like you said. And then they move on to Nevada and New Hampshire, running on the same day in February 6th. And then to Georgia on February 13th and Michigan in February 27th. We will demonstrate to the entire world, not just this country, that this party is the party of the people. The Democratic argument here is that this new calendar now highlights and rewards new Dem battlegrounds that outperformed in the midterm elections, those being Michigan and Georgia, which Michigan now has a Dem trifecta. In Georgia, we saw how important that peach state vote is, especially in that now 51-seat majority for Democrats in the Senate. We applaud President Biden and the DNC for the open process that had led us to this most diverse calendar we have ever seen. This is giving voters who historically had little to no say in this early window process a much, much louder voice. Would different types of candidates get elected or nominated because of this order? Like, will that functionally change what type of people are successful in Democratic politics. Absolutely. And I think that's an argument that folks in Iowa were trying to make to say that they should still be in the window. Democrats cannot forget about entire groups of voters in the heart of the Midwest without doing significant damage to the party. The order of these states matters because it, A, allows folks who are insurgent candidates or no-name candidates to make their name early in the primary. Some states are cheaper than others. It's cheaper to campaign in a smaller state than a bigger state like Texas or New York. Mm. And if you're kind of a no-name Democrat really wanting to make your play, I think a a candidate who comes to mind who was able to take advantage of this, someone named Barack Obama, have you heard of him, Mm -hmm. Brad? You heard of him before? (laughs) 
Yeah, the, yeah, and he was like Mr. Iowa all of a sudden, as if he'd been born there. Right, exactly, and kind of materialized. He apparated out of nowhere, but he was one of those kind of candidates who could come from the back burner and really launch a successful campaign because he was able to save his money uh, and grow momentum through media markets, through doing well and early in the primary calendar and then moving on to the end of that calendar in South Carolina and beyond. Uh, now, different kinds of voters get a stamp on who that primary candidate might be. Oh, that's interesting. So like so like black voters will have more of a voice. Latino voters in Nevada might even have more of a voice. And yet it will by nature, the choices might become even a little bit more mainstream. Correct. And then there's also a conversation of like, what kind of rural voters matter? I think the Midwest who feel snubbed by this, they're saying, well, you are disenfranchising us. And then you're seeing black and brown Democrats on the East Coast saying, well, rural and suburban voters can be black and brown, too. They can be minorities, too. Mm. And they vote with our, our party in lockstep, and they deserve to have a, not even outsized influence, but just a, a commensurate influence with how much money and time and you know, how much synergy they have with the party in, in general. And I, and I think that many Democrats think this is an amazing thing. And finally, they're actually catching up with where they need to have been at least 10 years ago. Republicans are also trying to paint the Democrats as out of step with tradition, as not actually listening to what their voters want. Kind of the argument they're trying to make is, hey, if you are a regular Joe or regular Joanne in the middle of the country, Democrats, namely Joe Biden, doesn't care about you, that Washington is not here for you. And they're saying, well, if they're not going to be here for you, we sure will because we're not changing our calendar. We'll see you in the at the Iowa State Fair. We'll see you at the New Hampshire primary. We'll be shaking hands. We'll be in the diners. We'll be in the heartland, even if that's not actually the case. And in fact, I believe there's a lot more nuance in the argument that they're presenting. That's what they're painting. And I think it's for us to see if that actually resonates with voters. And that's interesting that, again, if, if Republicans have been trying to sell kind of America as it once was, this fits exactly into that. All right. Brittany Shepard, really interesting. Thank you so much. Anytime. OK, let's hit the pause button. When we come back, they didn't get here with cheat codes. Video games crashed the mainstream. One last thing is next. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. The Grammy Awards always tell us where the country is at musically, and where we're at is Beyonce is truly the queen bee. We're witnessing history tonight. Breaking the record for the most Grammy wins of all time. But another sign of the times moment happened earlier last evening when the Recording Academy gave out the first ever Grammy for best score for a video game. I just want to recognize all of the people who fought tirelessly to bring this category of video game music into existence. 
That's right, the music production value for video games is so good that they have their own category. Officially, best score soundtrack for video games or other interactive media. Thank you for acknowledging and validating the power of game music. The inaugural winner this year was composer Stephanie Ikonomu for Assassin's Creed Valhalla and its spooky, ominous vibes. which beat out the get-or-done warrior tones of Call of Duty Vanguard. And you can hear how cinematic these scores are. They're every bit as ambitious as film soundtracks. Gone are the days of Mario's synthesizer. Nowadays, the video game industry brings in more money in the U.S. than films and music combined. Think about that. It's hundreds of billions. If you're looking for the most successful art form in the country, this is it. Which might be why concertgoers have paid good money to see full orchestras play famous video game scores. Because all that investment makes them, uh, really good. Assassin's Creed wasn't the first video game to win a Grammy. Civilization IV won Best Instrumental Arrangement a little over a decade ago, but it does feel like video games are having a new type of moment in the mainstream. Ask fans of HBO's The Last of Us. Maybe it's everywhere. Maybe there's nowhere to go. Some fans of the show about a mutant fungus might not even know it was based on a game about a mutant fungus. And that's when you know you've made it. When you're not just taking cultures, you are the culture. That Mario tune, still a banger, ahead of its time. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget, more than awards, we crave ratings, reviews, telling your friend about the show. Tell your family about the show. Tell the gamer in your life about the show. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.